This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. I'm Ellen Sukiel, uh, Professor of Philosophy and Provost of Stevenson College. Uh, we are two units of many that are supporting this lecture by Jonathan Moreno today. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome my old friend, Jonathan Moreno. Uh, Jonathan is professor, he has three titles. He's professor of medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. He's the David and Lynn Silfen University professor at the University of Pennsylvania and professor of the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. He's one of our country's most distinguished bioethicists and bioethical policy advisors, and he's got lots of good stories to tell about Washington if you can catch him uh, alone. Jonathan served on important national commissions and presidential advisory committees. Particularly relevant in the context of this talk is his service as a senior staff member of President Clinton's Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. He's given invited testimony for both houses of Congress, and he's a frequent guest on news and information programs. His recent book, Undue Risk, Secret State Experiments on Humans, was hailed by critics for its very disconcerting revelations about state-sponsored human experimentation with clinical and biological agents, and was judged to be a book which will shape debate for years to come about past and future human experimentation. He's going to speak to us today on the ethics of human experimentation for national security purposes. Please join me in welcoming Jonathan Moreno. Thank you, and, uh, and uh, thanks to the university for having me. Thanks, to, uh, Ellen, for being such a good host. And, you know, Ellen, I didn't realize until I saw this that it's Adlai Stevenson yes. College. Yes. Uh, my mother was madly for Adlai. So uh, if you don't know what that means, I'll explain that to you later. Uh, um, so um, this is a little bit of an offbeat talk uh, for a philosopher, but all my work is pretty offbeat for a philosopher. Um, I'm, uh, uh, I'm interested in the, uh, the history of science, history of medicine, and uh, the way that medical ethics has played into that to sort of our political history and our cultural history. Um, this topic came out of uh, some work I did as a member of the staff of a presidential advisory committee under President Clinton in 1994-95. And this was an advisory committee that was both kind of a truth commission and an ethics commission. It was a truth commission in the sense that there are lots of rumors around the country about uh, secret experiments sponsored by the federal government involving human beings uh, on ionizing radiation. Um, And it was an ethics commission in the sense that the uh, president asked us not only to uh, dig around in secret documents and declassify them, which is part of what my work was, um, but also uh, how did the uh, standards of human experiments in the 1940s through the 1970s compare to our standards for doing ethical human experiments in the mid-1990s when we were doing this work. Uh, so this was a very unusual uh, experience, and when I finished that, um, I, I had a lot of stuff that I had not put together, and so I said, well, you know, if you're an, uh, an academic, you 
don't want to lose any, leave any paper unpublished. Uh, so um, I then began to do research not only in, on the history of human experiments involving radiation, but also more generally about um, the history of national security-related human experiments. Uh, and that led to uh, a book uh, that uh, Ellen mentioned uh, called Undue Risk, which I published about six years ago. There's another book that I published last year called Mind Wars uh, about neuroscience and national security. Um, and I'm going to be talking about that tomorrow, right, tomorrow afternoon, I think. Um, so um, this, is a, but this is a talk that really does get into the history of medicine. And, and um, I, I actually like to do this historically, as you'll see, because you really need to give people a grounding, I think, in this stuff. And I will try not to talk for more than 45 minutes or so, but I usually lie about that, um, and then uh, open up the discussion. Uh, so uh, I'm sure you all know who this is, uh, as uh, ed well-educated University of California uh, students and faculty. So this is, this is not somebody I would have known who this is either, except that I, before I got to Penn, I taught at the University of Virginia. And this, is the, this man was the youngest graduate in the history of our medical school at the University of Virginia. He was uh, 16 when he graduated from medical school. But he graduated in 1867, when there was a lot less medicine to learn. Uh, this picture shows him. His name was Walter Reed. Uh, he's the person for, for whom the Army Hospital is named in Washington. This shows him uh, at, at the height of his career. Uh, as you can see, he was an Army doctor. And um, Walter Reed is famous mostly because uh, he went to Cuba uh, at the order of the Army Surgeon General in 1900 to figure out once and for all uh, what the source of yellow fever is. And if you don't know anything about yellow fever, um, it's one of the scour scourges of uh, humanity that is pretty much forgotten now. Uh, yellow fever, diphtheria, these were diseases that killed many, many people. Uh, in the United States, there were, there were repeated yellow fever epidemics. People didn't understand, it was a, it's a very horrible way to die. And people didn't understand um, how yellow fever spread. There were various theories at the time. And uh, as you may remember, um, 1900 was just two years after we got uh, uh, Cuba and the Philippines in a nice little war with Spain. Uh, so there was a detachment of American soldiers holding Cuba. Um, there was interest in building a canal, as you may remember, in the, in the zone, which we finally did. So this really be became a national security problem. What was the, what was the reason for, uh, for this yellow fever outbreak in, in Cuba? And Reed was sent to figure it out. Um, so um, this is a, a picture of the, some of the soldiers who were in the detachment in Havana at the time. Uh, and so how do you think uh, Walter Reed uh, figured out what the source of uh, yellow fever is? I mean, there were, there were three theories at the time. It was a, it was a tick, uh, it was a mosquito, and it was direct contact with people who had yellow fever. Um, so uh, he basically did a controlled experiment. Um, on the last arm of the experiment, the direct contact with people or the fluids of people who had yellow fever, uh, he put some of these soldiers into that part of the experiment. Um, and um, one, of, one of the unfortunate people who was part of this was Corporal Wood, who was in the lower, lower right hand. Uh, let me try to wake you up by giving you the setup for this part of the experiment. They took the, the blood, vomit, and feces of people who had just died of yellow fever, poured it on a cot. I can't make this up. Then poured it on blankets, put the soldiers in, on the cot under the blankets, and left them there for 24 hours. Uh, public health ain't pretty. Uh, turned out, um, they didn't get yellow fever. Neither did the people who were exposed to the bite of the tick, but people who were exposed to the 
to the silverback female mosquito did get yellow fever. Uh, so, well, we celebrate Walter Reed because they, this is a great public health uh, discovery that saved countless future lives. They then went around to all the pools of standing water in, in Havana and environs, and that was the end of yellow fever. Um, but we also celebrate Walter Reed because of the way he performed this experiment. This is a, uh, a one-page, uh, we would today call it a consent form, or they would have in those days called it a contract. Remember, this is 1900. I'm going to show you the, the English language version of this document in a minute, but notice that it is signed by one of the local uh, volunteers, shall we call them. Uh, Antonio Benigno is a Spanish worker, so they used soldiers and some of the, of the local men who had emigrated uh, from Spain to Cuba for work. Uh, and they recruited them when they got off the boat, uh, some of them to be in this experiment. And this is, the con- this is what we today call a consent form. And I know you can't read it, most of you, from where you are. But basically what it says is, uh, I know I'm going to be in an experiment. I know it has to do with yellow fever. I could die in the experiment, but I'm in Cuba, so I could die anyway. Uh, I will get excellent medical care. Uh, if I take the bite uh, of the mosquito, I will get $100 in American gold. If I get sick, I'll get $100 in American gold. And if I die, the money will go to my family. Well... Uh, now, modern philosophers and ethicists might not be too happy about the money part. $200 is a lot of money in those days. Uh, they might not be too happy with the promise of excellent medical care because the reality is they didn't know what to do with, if you had yellow fever. Uh, but uh, one has to say that I know if any of you have volunteered to be in a clinical trial, a human experiment, uh, if, you, if you ever have been, uh, you've signed a document that is written by a lot of lawyers and is pages and pages and pages. This is one page. And it's in pretty simple English and Spanish. So um, there are a lot of reasons that Walter Reed probably decided to be the first to use such a document. One was um, to protect himself, historians think, from charges of exploiting human beings in experiments the way that there had been other scandals in the 1890s in Europe uh, and in, in, uh, in the U.S. about doing human experiments. So he apparently tried to, as it were, inoculate himself uh, from such charges uh, by using this document. Um, that, uh, the fact that it happened in 1900, when it did, also tells us something about the way that uh, ethics has evolved. Uh, there, was, there was a general agreement, of course, for a long time before that, that you don't just use people, you just exploit people. But now people thought it should be articulated more. There's this notion now of a signed document, which was, as I say, unprecedented. So, so for various reasons, around 1900, things began to change. It was also the time when um, uh, experimental medicine, experimental science, experimental biology began to make more sense. There was germ theory that was discovered in the 1870s, 1880s, developed in the 1880s. There were physiological laboratories that were doing experiments on frogs. Uh, you know, so there, were a lot, there was a lot of excitement about biology and science. Um, so a lot of things converged, a lot of elements converged to make this the time when uh, the first consent form would, would be used in a human experiment. That worked uh, pretty well. Um, most Americans, in particular, thought science was pretty cool, and, that, and, the, and Walter Reed was a great culture hero. Uh, in the years after that, I should mention that Walter Reed uh, died a few years later of an infection uh, that was uh, misdiagnosed by a colleague. Uh, people thought that he died of, of taking the bite from the mosquito, that he experimented on himself. He actually didn't. Uh, one of his colleagues did and did die, one of his physician colleagues in, in, in Havana. 
But Walter Reed never took the bite, but people thought he did. He became a culture hero. Um, there was a Broadway play uh, called Yellow Jack, uh, dedicated to the Christian martyr Walter Reed. Um, there was a movie, Hollywood movie, based on the play. Uh, generations of students read about the heroic Christian martyr for science, Walter Reed, who took the bite and so forth. He actually didn't because after his colleague died, who was 32 years old, he wrote to his wife that at the, at the ripe old age of 49, he was probably not a good candidate for such an experiment. But nonetheless, the urban myth propagated that he was, one, that he was a hero of science, that he had given himself, martyred himself for science, uh, and so he became a big hero. That actually was a great thing for, um, for experimental medicine. For the next 40 years, Americans, there were, occasional, there were occasional scandals about using children in experiments and polio vaccine experiments and so forth, but for the most part, Americans felt that medicine could be done ethically and, of course, it could be a great thing for human beings, for, for, for society, because look at Walter Reed managed to do. Well, that began to change at the end of the Second World War when it was discovered uh, that, uh, that hundreds and hundreds of people had been used in concentration camp experiments uh, by, by the Nazis. And this is actually a, 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 an image of the 23 defendants in, in Germany after the war uh, in what is often called the doctor's trial. Um, and this is a trial, actually, of, of 20 doctors and several medical bureaucrats for uh, their role in uh, horrific experiments in the Nazi concentration camps. Um, there were, in, there's a little trivia here, um, and not the last piece of trivia I will offer you in the next 45 minutes or so. Um, there were 13 trials of Nazi war criminals uh, after the war, um, and there in Nuremberg. There are other trials in, in, in other places in Germany, post-war Germany. Um, there were never more than 24 defendants in any of the, of the Nuremberg trials. Why? This is not rocket science, that's right. There were 24 seats in the box. Right. So uh, the Allies got together and decided which of their prisoners uh, were, were going to be tried. And they actually interviewed 350 uh, uh, German doctors for possible uh, indictment. Um, the medical profession in Germany was very enthusiastic about, about Nazism for various reasons I can talk about later if you like. So um, this is the doc, and this is the only really disturbing image I'm going to show you this afternoon. This is a very famous picture of an individual who's being frozen to death or nearly to death in a hypothermia experiment. So uh, why would uh, the, uh, and, you, and by the way, it's very important, um, you can make out the insignia perhaps on, on, this, uh, on this soldier's chest on the, le on the left, right, the fellow on the right and left side of his chest. What does that look like to you? Looks like wings, right? So this, these were Luftwaffe officers, uh, officers in the German Air Force. Why would the Luftwaffe be interested, the German Air Force be interested in how to treat people who, were, uh, who were, had frozen to death or nearly to death? Close. Close. They get shot down from in the North Sea, Battle of Britain, and there, was, there were different theories about how to treat people who had hypothermia. So today, any of you have any EMT training, if you go home and look at your Merck manual or your, your handy-dandy guide to how to take care of sick people for lay people, you'll see that the protocol, if a kid falls in through the ice, I don't have ice in California, but you know, maybe up in the mountains somewhere, the kid falls through the ice ice skating, uh, what's, the, what's the approach? They're supposed to be wrapped in blankets and gradually rewarmed, hopefully with the 
uh, with, with the bodies of, of people next to them. So they gradually, gradual warming was the protocol that was developed in the concentration camps in this experiment. And it now appears in basically all of your, uh, all of your textbooks. Oh, sorry. I've got a million pockets, so it's very hard to tell. Give you that. It's okay. So um, um, these experiments included hypothermia. They also included, also, Stolz with Luftwaffe, actually high-altitude explosive decompression experiments. So what happens to a pilot if he, if he has to uh, get out of his aircraft? How... What's the altitude that's a safe altitude for, for the uh, pilot? To, so they, for that, they, they brought in a low-pressure chamber uh, from Berlin, uh, brought it to Dachau concentration camp, and they put people in it and lowered the air pressure, uh, the atmospheric pressure, in the, uh, until their lungs exploded, basically, to see what, how far that, that would have to go. So these were some of the experiments. But I, what I'd like to point out, what people aren't generally aware of, is that this was an experiment done for national security. Right? This was a military-sponsored series of experiments. There are others as well. Uh, as, as was the Walter Reed experiment that I told you before. So, you know, they got the good side and the bad side of these, of these experiments conducted by, uh, by uh, the military. Um, this is actually my favorite uh, of the so-called, uh, my, the most fascinating to me of the 23 defendants in the Nazi doctor's trial. This is Carl Brandt. Just to give an idea what kind of people we're talking about, these were not, these were not uh, um, people who a psychiatrist would diagnose as mentally ill. You know, there's a kind of an underst- I think there's a notion that like Joseph Mengele, you know, who did his twin experiments, that there was that he was a psychopath. Well, Joseph Mengele was an MD PhD. He was an up and coming young uh, medical researcher. He escaped to Argentina. Karl Brandt was Hitler's one of Hitler's personal physicians. He was a surgeon by training. Uh, he was in charge before the war of the T4 program, which was the program that so-called euthanized uh, people who were mentally ill or profoundly retarded. Uh, that program developed a gas called Zyklon B that was then used in the, in the killing uh, concentration camps. Um, and uh, Brandt, interestingly, when, when he was one of the seven who was sentenced to die uh, by hanging. And uh, when Brandt was uh, sentenced, he offered the courts an alternative to hanging him. What do you think that was as a good experimenter? Hmm? Not quite. He said, you know, why don't you, instead of wasting my body, why don't you use me in a lethal medical experiment? Interesting rationalization of kind of his role and the role of science, um, giving his life to science and so forth. The, the court decided they'd just hang him. So that was the end of that. Um, what's really interesting about this trial, though, is that out of the trial came a, uh, a ten-point code of ethics that the judges wrote as the third part of their, of their of their decision in the case, three American judges. Uh, we, posterity knows this as the Nuremberg Code. This is the first sentence of the Nuremberg Code. Now, why would the judges be so concerned about writing their own code of ethics? Well, um, it turns out that, the, that the, if you start looking at the trial, the defense lawyers for the Nazi doctors were really good. The, the, the prosecution lawyers were young army lawyers who knew nothing about science and medicine. But the, the Nazi uh, defendants were able to choose their own lawyers, and they had very senior defense counsel. They were very experienced. And uh, their argument was this, and this really shook up the judges. What well, was a six-week trial, they thought it was going to be a six-week trial, it turned out to be a six-month trial. They thought it was going to be open and shut, right? 
these doctors killed people, end of story. Well, the defense argued, look, there are in fact no good, they said in 1946 and during the war, there were no good international rules that govern human experiments. In fact, the Allies did human experiments on many of the same kinds of issues that these defendants did, and they used what kinds of people? They used prisoners. They entered into evidence this Life magazine story from June 1945, June 3rd, 1945. And I don't know, I love this picture. It's, it, to me, it's really iconic because um, you could spend a lot of time, I think, analyzing this picture. So the, we say that this, this is a, a malaria experiment that took place in, this happened to be at the, uh, at the Stateville, Illinois prison. Also took place in federal prison in Georgia and a federal prison in New Jersey. This is a White House-sponsored malaria experiment. 800 federal prisoners involved in this. Why would the White House be interested in malaria in 1946? Sorry, in 1945, spring of 45. What, what, what would, would we think we we're going to have to do in the fall of 45? Okay. Go into Japan, right? Send, and, there, and the fear was that hundreds of thousands of soldiers would die invading the home islands of Japan. And they thought a couple of million Japanese civilians would die. So uh, they wanted to be as prepared as they could. Now, it turns out that infectious disease often takes out more soldiers than bombs and bullets, uh, including, in that part of the world, malaria. So, and there was no good therapy for malaria. They had quinine. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. So um, they identified 800 volunteer prisoners uh, who would be exposed to malaria. And, and if you can see in this picture, that there's this glass jar... And basically what's going on is these malaria-carrying mosquitoes are biting this young man uh, through, the, through the opening of the jar. Um, you can see that and the, the symbolism in the picture is terrific. The bars behind him show he's obviously in prison. Um, how would you characterize this, this young man? Kind of cute? I don't know. I mean, my freshmen weren't so sure when I showed them this picture at Penn last year. But, you know, he's kind of a nice-looking young man. Uh, what about the the what about this guy on the left? How would you what would you call him? Nerd. A total nerd, right? Total geek. It hasn't changed. Uh, the imagery of the science geek is still the same, um, but he's looking very intently at these mosquitoes. Uh, and so there's a lot going on in this picture. I think um, the the superintendent of the prison was so proud of what his men had volunteered to do for the war effort that he told the photographer is not to take any pictures until the scientists could show up. So um, this, is exactly, this is exactly what happened. And so this is, by the way, it's, a magazine in 1945 was not like a magazine today when, you know, everybody's got their own magazine, right? In 1945, there were seven or six. Time, Life, Newsweek, Look, the Saturday Evening Post. Everybody read the same magazines. So this was unbelievable coverage for this, for this experiment. And obviously, it was not secret. Right. So let me just show you the. This is uh, the second page of the photo spread. Um, I told my graduate student, who's, uh, at first he was going to take the neat ad out of it, but I said, no, leave it in, because you know, it kind of makes the point that we should have invested in neat instead of Microsoft, because you know, body hair will always be with us, but I'm not sure, sure about Microsoft. Um, so now the, the, the question is, now, how many of these guys died? out of 800, exposed to malaria? Zero. 
None of them died. Um, and, and, though, and, and looking back on it, numbers of them said this was the greatest thing they did in their lives. Why? Their, their friends from high school were in the Pacific, right? Or their fathers in some cases, right? their brothers. They were in prison because they did, they did some stupid things. So this was a way for them to pay back, they said. Well, we didn't actually ever invade uh, Japan because of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That was the end of that war. Um, but the judges were so astonished by the defense, the very effective defense of the Nazi doctors by their lawyers that they decided to write an international code of ethics called the Nuremberg Code, which I'm going to come back to. Meanwhile, we enter the atomic age. Um, this is what Hiroshima looked a few days after uh, the blast. Uh, some of you have seen there was a really powerful uh, documentary la- a few months ago on HBO um, about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, obviously, continuing debate about that. Um, there was tremendous interest in radiation in those days. This is Joseph Hamilton on the left, famous uh, Berkeley professor um, who was a, one of the early experts on health physics, the, the effect of ionizing radiation in the body. He used to look, like to, he's got a volunteer drinking uh, some, uh, some water with some, uh, with, that's ionized uh, and a Geiger counter there. Um, Hamilton liked to do this experiment in front of his class at Berkeley. He used to like to, to drink some of this stuff and then walk past a Geiger counter and make it pop. Uh, he died in his, in his late 40s um, of cancer, so it's probably not a, you know, not a good experiment to do. Um, the whole history of this, the role of radiation and, and, and government-sponsored radiation experiments I'm going to tell you a little bit more about, uh, really came up in, in, the, in the early 90s. This was the as I mentioned, that um, presidential commission that I worked for, this is the cover of our final report. It's 1,000 pages. You're welcome to read it uh, anytime you want. But let me just give you a taste of it, what was going on in those days. So this is how top-secret information was passed around the United States uh, in the 1940s during the war. This is a telegram. By the way, if you want to send a telegram now, you can't. The last telegram was sent about a year, year and a half ago, I think, two years ago. Um, so... Um, the telegram has to be decoded, but if you can read it, it it's, it's from uh, uh, Robert M. Fink, who was a doctor at the University of Rochester, and it's uh, to uh, doctor, doctors Wright Langham and uh, Lou Hempelman. So Langham and, and, and Hempelman were two um, experts on ionizing radiation and the body, and it's dated um, November 30, 1945, 11-30-45, and it says... HP3 and HP4 injected Tuesday, November 27th. HP5 injected Friday, November 30th. HP uh, stands for human product. Um, Decoding this, in 1945, um, J. Robert Oppenheimer and the people who were running the, the Manhattan Project, the project to develop the atomic bomb, were very concerned about the effects of ionizing radiation on their young graduate students who were doing various projects as part of this top-secret project to build the atom bomb. And they had really weird uh, experience, anecdotal experience. They, they really couldn't tell how bad this stuff was for you. Um, in particular, they were, they were working with a metal called plutonium, uh, which was isolated for the first time in 1940-41, um, is tens of thousands, 20,000 times, uh, as I recall, more radioactive than uranium. 
Um, they, you, they get plutonium from uranium, and, and because they didn't have enough uranium in those days to make a lot of bombs, they wanted to see if they could make a bomb using plutonium. So they had these grad students working with this stuff, and there are a lot of weird stories during the war. For example, one of their grad students had a beaker full of uh, plutonium in a liquid suspension, and he clumsily uh, knocked it against a lab bench, a lab table, and it vaporized and got, into his, and got into his face and eyes and mouth. And he realized, you know, what had happened, and he ran down the hall, and he, he feared he was, would die, maybe not because of the plutonium, but because he had just destroyed much of the country's plutonium stash, and his professor was going to kill him, right? He, he lived. Um, but they had, the, the, then there was other fellow in Chicago. The, there's a famous story about the atomic pile in Chicago uh, under the Chicago squash court, uh, top secret. He drops a, a, um, uh, um, a screwdriver into the rods. The, the room starts to turn purple, which means that this thing is about to go critical, could blow up much of Chicago. He reaches in into the rods to pull out the screwdriver, he dies a miserable death within two weeks. So they were wondering what, this was a worker safety problem. Now they knew from rats that, uh, that, when, that plutonium in rats goes to bone, and they knew from rats how fast rats excrete plutonium. You don't want this stuff in your body for very long. It's what radiologists call an internal emitter. You don't want that. You especially don't want it in your lungs. But they didn't know how fast their graduate students would excrete plutonium. So what they decided to do was they identified um, 17 people around the country who were hospitalized with bone cancer. And they decided that they would secretly give them uh, plutonium. Now why bone cancer? I theorized that they, they thought they might have a magic bullet for bone cancer. Because we know from rats that this stuff goes to bone. Um, unfortunately, of the 17 people who got the plutonium, about a third were misdiagnosed. Uh, they didn't have bone cancer. Uh, one of them had a stomach ulcer. Um, these things will happen. Um, uh, and this is, a, this is three of them who were given plutonium. This is about three of them who were given plutonium in 1945. So these were secret plutonium injections uh, for the sake of uh, worker safety. Um, by the way, how many of the 17 people who got these injections who was hospitalized, died of their plutonium injections, do you think? None. The ones who had cancer died of their cancer. Um, the others survived. Uh, one guy survived uh, into the early 1970s. Um, he was curious about why the University of California at San Francisco Hospital would call him back every few years to examine his excreta. Um, his, his, his sister, who was a nurse, was very suspicious of this. They ne- he died without knowing that he had been in a plutonium experiment. So um, there were the, the, this is, these are two letters. I'm just going to show you the second one from the Atomic Energy Commission in 1947, as you can see, to uh, physician contractors who were working with radioisotopes, radiation. The a- Atomic Energy Commission inherited all of the contracts and response. well, not most of the contracts and responsibilities of the Manhattan Project. Now, if you're a lawyer for the Atomic Energy Commission, the USAEC, after the war, and you find out about these secret plutonium injections, do you think that you would advise your client, the U.S. government, to go public with this? No, no. 
they decided, you know, we don't, these plutonium injections are very embarrassing. It could look bad for the government to have injected its own people with plutonium without their permission. Um, there are these trials going on, you know, these Nazi doctor trials going on at the same time as we're looking at these records. We don't, definitely don't want to be associated with that. Um, so they decided not to release that information. We only learned about this in the early 90s um, after the, the documents were declassified, partly through that commission I mentioned. But what's interesting about this document is that it requires, it says that if you're doing, using our radioisotopes to do experiments, medical experiments, you have to get informed consent. That's the first time that that term, informed consent, appears in writing, anywhere, so far as we know. Um, it also, by the way, requires the informed consent of next of kin, which we would today say is actually unethical, because who's my next of kin to say whether I can be an experiment or not? I'm a competent adult, it's up to me. So this was obviously not written, this is written by lawyers, not by doctors. Right? Um, what happened to this document, which we, did, we discovered in the early 90s? It was, it was, law, it was, it was forgotten uh, as soon as the ink was dry. Um, let's give you a sense of, of what, the, what the radiation environment sort of was like in terms of uh, uh, the development of uranium plutonium at the time. This is the Hanford Nuclear Facility in Hanford, Washington. This was where they got the plutonium from the uranium for the bomb. By the way, the first atomic bomb that was exploded in New Mexico was a uranium bomb. The Hiroshima bomb was, what do you think, uranium or plutonium? It was uranium. Why? They only had three of them. They weren't sure the plutonium bomb would work. So they didn't want to mess around and drop a bomb that would be a dud. So the first bomb, the bomb that hit Hiroshima and killed over 100,000 people uh, and vaporized tens of thousands of them, was uranium. The second one was plutonium that fell on Nagasaki. Um, plutonium came from Hanford. This is the worst environmental site in the country, which is saying something. It, it, th this was a very leaky facility in, a, in what was a pristine part of, the, of Washington State. Um, this, is, this is where the, uh, the rods came out uh, as part of the atomic pile. These are workers uh, at Hanford. You can see that every day they had to go in. These are 1950s sort of period pictures. You can see they, they, they had their um, radiation badges that they had to hand in every day to see if they'd been exposed. Um, this is a guy being dusted for any, uh, any uh, radioactive dust. These are people who are testing the air. How'd you like to work in a place where every day they're testing the air to see how much radiation there is in the air? Um, they're taking blood periodically. Um, I like this one especially. When you go to the cafeteria, you know, you don't want to see them dusting the tables for radioactive debris. I mean, that's, that's not good for the appetite. Um, and this is Wright Langham, one of the, uh, uh, those health physicists I mentioned before, with uh, his colleague. Uh, so, you know. <laughs> now, I showed you that, um, that first line from the Nuremberg Code. I'm now going to show you a document that has that line again. The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This is a document that was top secret uh, for a long time. Uh, don't worry, you're not going to go to Guantanamo because I showed you this. Um, it's no longer top secret, it's been declassified. Um, this is a really amazing document. This is dated 26 February 953. This is from the Secretary of Defense to the Secretaries of the Army, Navy, and Air Force. And what I want to point out to you is that it has that first line again, the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. It goes on to repeat the Nuremberg Code word for word. Now, if you 
handed something like this in to one of your professors here at Santa Cruz, uh, your professor would have to report you to uh, the provost. Because although the Secretary of Defense quotes the Nuremberg Code word for word, he leaves out a little fact, which is what? There's no cite. Right? It's verbatim the Nuremberg Code. Now, in my book, Under Risk, I tell the unbelievably interesting story about how the Nuremberg Code got to be the policy of the Pentagon for doing human experiments involving atomic and biological and chemical weapons. This is 1953. This is about, this is about seven or eight years before the first academic scientists get interested in the issue of written consent for people who are in experiments in the United States. Um, so the Pentagon is actually way ahead of the academy. So this was top secret, and this was to govern all experiments for defensive purposes. They called it in those days ABC warfare research. Very convenient. Atomic, biological, and chemical. I would show this uh, slide to people before 9-11 and before the anthrax attacks in fall 2001, and we'd say, eh, it's kind of interesting history, but who cares? Well, we're very, we care a lot now, again, about biological and chemical weapons. So a uh, very interesting story about this document. Um, Signed by Charlie Wilson, uh, who was called Engine Charlie. He was Eisenhower's Secretary of Defense. He's, he, when he was being confirmed, uh, he had just come from General Motors as the CEO of General Motors. And some congressmen were worried that, you know, how could he, would the, would the, would the interests of General Motors conflict with the interests of the Pentagon? And he would say, what's good for General Motors is good for America. That was a famous statement by Engine Charlie. Um, so he signed it. Uh, I, could, I, I will condense the story by telling you that the doctors and the admirals and the generals who got this document thought it, was a, thought it was a catastrophe because it required written consent for, for, for medical experiments for soldiers and, and airmen and marines. They thought it was a catastrophe because, first of all, if you're a doctor, they said, you know, doctors, they have their own code of ethics, right? Hippocratic Oath, it's worked very well for 2,000 years. You know, we don't need another, we don't need to be told by the Pentagon how to treat people we're taking care of. Uh, and, the, and the admirals and the generals were very annoyed because, um, you know, as one officer once said to me, you know, Dr. Moreno, it's a funny thing. Ever since I got in the Army, I've done something stupid every day, you know? Like walking around with live ammunition going by me, <laughs> you know, or standing out in the rain all night with a dummy rifle. Everything my mother told me not to do. So, get, you know, the idea of consent in the military, it's not really familiar. Um, so how, did, how well did this rule work? I'm going to call it the Wilson rule, the Wilson policy. Written consent for anybody in atomic, biological, and chemical weapons experiment if you're in the, in the military. Well, not too well. Uh, briefly, this is, a, this is a memo from, this is a, what we politely call a cover-your-butt memo. This was written by um, an officer in the Air Force who was in charge of flash blindness experiments. Turns out that when you drop the atomic bomb, you're blinded. Uh, and so they really wanted to know, you know, how blind do you get and for how long? So the long and the short of it is, behind this memo, this fellow has been doing some bl flash blindness experiments with American flyers, and they've been blinded, temporarily blinded. Now he hears that there's a policy that the Secretary of Defense has for doing ethical human experiments. And he's saying here, I wish you would tell me what the policy is, because I'm still doing these experiments, and I don't know what I'm 
you know, I don't know what the rules are. So they didn't do a really good job in getting these rules across to people. Um, in fact, in 1975, following the revelations of LSD experiments in the Army, which I think some of you know about, you know that the Army did, CIA, and the CIA did LSD experiments. Nobody knows that. It's really interesting. I'll talk more about that in my talk on Mind Wars tomorrow. Um, this is what the Army Inspector General said. Going back to the Wilson rules, what happened? Well, I think this is a wonderful understatement. They didn't really interpret it consistently. Um, so here's an example. By the way, you can go on YouTube. There's wonderful stuff that I show my students on YouTube that I commend to you about uh, the atomic bomb uh, detonations. You know, there were 250,000 soldiers between 53 and 62 who were deployed to be within miles of ground zero in atomic bomb tests. This is one of them. So this is, they're in the, you can see that they're, they're, they're in, uh, they're getting ready now to witness the blast. They put their heads down, they do the countdown. Uh, you, there's the uh, mushroom cloud. And there you get a sense of the, uh, sort of where they are. Uh, some of these guys actually marched through ground zero a little later after the heat died down. Uh, and um, it, was, uh, it was very common. Um, now, ask yourself this question. Was this a human experiment? A lot of the so-called atomic soldiers, as they called themselves, years later, the atomic veterans, they, they, they believe it was. This was not classified as a human experiment. This was not considered to be a human experiment. What was this considered to be in the 1950s? Exactly. It was a training exercise for the atomic battlefield of the future. So if you, if you read some science fiction from the 1950s, you'll see my favorite, Starship Troopers, Heinlein. Um, not the really terrible movie that came out like 10 years ago or something, but I mean the, the original. They've got, they've got um, nuclear-tipped bazookas on their backs. The atomic battlefield of the future, this is about desensitization. This is not an experiment. So since it wasn't an experiment, what rules do not apply? Secretary Wilson's memo, right? The consent rules don't apply. Not a human experiment. So... Um, the bottom line here is, who decides what counts as what fits in what box in a bureaucracy is a very important question. So uh, that's the story with the atomic soldiers. Only a few years ago we found out that there was this prog program with, uh, uh, with, with biological agents uh, called Shipboard Hazard and Defense. They would fly over uh, uh, ships and also, by the way, over soldiers on the ground and spray aerosols, aerosolized biological agents. Um, we did this to our own guys. Um, one of the big figures in this uh, was this fellow, Sidney Gottlieb. Uh, Sidney Gottlieb was like uh, the real Q that you see in the, uh, in the 007 movies. Q gives all those cool things. I was a little upset he wasn't in the last movie, by the way. But anyway, in the earlier movies, he's given all this cool stuff in every, in every story to Bond. Sidney Gottlieb was sort of like, like Q for the CIA. Uh, he was the guy who did the MKUltra experiments. Uh, involving LSD. This is a obviously declassified but highly redacted, highly edited uh, memo. It's, it's actually a budget memo. It says how much you can spend to pay people to do, and I'll, I'll show you this. Uh, this project will include, this is also 53, by the way, big year, 1953. Uh, this project will include a continuation of the study of biochemical, neurophysiological, sociological, and clinical psychiatric aspects of LSD, and also a study of LSD antagonists and drugs related to LSD. Why was the CIA interested in LSD? Sorry? 
uh, partly for truth serum, partly to see if, it, if you could somehow get into the water and, and uh, disorient an enemy population, maybe enemy soldiers, right? Um, maybe to see also what it would do to our guys. So what if they, if they, uh, if they uh, kidnapped an American atomic physicist and gave him LSD? Would it make him or her talk? So they were very concerned about, uh, about that um, as well from a defensive standpoint. In fact, the scenario I just told you kind of happened. This is uh, Frank Olson. Frank Olson was the, Army's, uh, excuse me, was the CIA's anthrax expert who was uh, stationed at Fort Detrick in Maryland. Um, he was given LSD. Uh, not clear exactly what was going on with that, but if you go on the web, you'll see there's a lot of stuff about Frank Olson. It's kind of become part of the culture now. He jumped out of the 11th story of the hotel that's across from Penn Station in New York. Um, and uh, you can read about Frank Olson. His son, Eric Olson, a psychologist, uh, has a lot of stuff on the web about it. Um, at the, when this was, when this was um, declassified in 1975 by President Ford, uh, the CIA said, oh, well, he became psychotic. And you know, we, we gave him L C LSD. We shouldn't have done that. It was a terrible thing. And then he became psychotic. We took him to New York for treatment, but it was too late. He jumped out of the window. Well. You know, very few people jump out of closed windows with the blinds drawn. You know, not a common, common thing. Uh, Eric Olson, his son, believes that this was actually a CIA assassination. Because, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this one I think is plausible because he believes that his father was about to blow the whistle on the MKUltra experiments. We'll never know exactly what happened there. Here's an obituary for, uh, for Dr. Olson um, uh, from 53. Here's another guy who died in 53. It was a big year somehow. This is Ronald Madison, M-A-D-D-I-S-O-N, two Ds in Madison. Um, you can also read about him on the web. Uh, he was in a sarin gas experiment at, in, at Porton Down in the United Kingdom. Uh, sarin gas is by far, with Tabin and one or two other gases, that were accidentally, dis well, that were more or less accidentally created by R.G. Farben uh, before the Second World War, uh, uh, chemical company making dyes, uh, unbelievably, I mean, one, one drop of this stuff can kill lots of people. It's incredibly lethal stuff. He was uh, in, the, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the service in the UK. Uh, he and a number of other guys volunteered for what, what they might have thought was a flu experiment. Uh, he, was, he was exposed to sarin and died within, within minutes of exposure. Um, his death... Uh, uh, was covered up for um, until a couple of years ago, uh, and only uh, when a local constable got irritated by all the rumors about this important down, he reopened the, the case, and uh, a jury trial actually found that uh, he died of, uh, as a result of a medical experiment, um, which now has opened up a lot of the families of other guys who were in these experiments at the time for lawsuits in the British system. Um, this is so. If you read about this, you can see that there's stories that, uh, about the Ronald Madison uh, case, which we're only now starting to uh, learn about. Back to Maryland, Fort Detrick, Maryland. If you go there today, you can see this. This is uh, affectionately called the Eight Ball. Uh, it's a million-liter cloud chamber, and I, I want you to pay attention to the portals, the portholes in the sides. Um, this is what it what it looked like with some of the dissimetry devices underneath it. This is a really cool model of the 8-ball. I'm going to tell you what this is in a minute, what they used it for. So this is what it looked like when it was actively being used. 
Um, these are just, it was used to be uh, surrounded by a wooden building, burned down a number of years ago. And these are uh, scientists who are, uh, who are using dissimetry devices to figure out uh, how many molecules and what the size of molecules are in the space in the eight ball. Okay, so what's in the eight ball? Well, um, these people have volunteered to inhale whatever is in the eight ball. This is the 1950s through the early 70s. Um, what they're inhaling is stuff like Venezuelan equine encephalitis, Q fever, Rift Valley fever, uh, tularemia. These are not things that you want to get. Um, and they're volunteering. Well, who would volunteer? Anybody want to volunteer to be in this uh, experiment? They're, they're checking out these days. They're, to that day, they're checking out gas masks. Well, it turns out that these uh, were Seventh-day Adventists uh, in the Mid-Atlantic area who were in the military. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church made a deal with the Army that if their people would volunteer to be in these biological weapons experiments at Fort Detrick, uh, they would not be assigned to active combat, which they prefer them not to do. So, uh, this is a, so this was not secret. This is actually a brochure that the SDA Church published. And I love these pictures. Um, Rift Valley Fever Project volunteers take an outdoor break from hospital routines. Um, you know, and this is a guy in the exercycle. Um, you know, they're having a nice time in between inhaling poison. Um, these are some more pictures from the brochure. Um, now, these guys have uh, reunions. This is one that they held about 20 years ago. Um, they, they call themselves Project White Coat. They gave me some T-shirts with Project White Coat on it. Uh, they have reunions. Uh, they're very proud of their service. Uh, they actually have done, did important work uh, at Fort Detrick in those days, and much of this information is very important to defending against biological weapons. So, um, and these are some medics that I interviewed a few years ago for undue risk, who were, these people were probably getting their anthrax uh, vaccine. Uh, again, experimental volunteers. Um, a very good group of people. Um, and now we come to today. So um, I just want to give you a sense of where we are today with this to bring it really up to date. Um, so normally, it is required to do human experiments before you can get a drug approved by the federal government. Not many of you may know that that is no longer an absolute requirement. If you can show that this is a, a drug that will be really important for a society to protect itself against a biological weapon, maybe a foreign adversary, um, and if you can't ethically do that experiment on people. So let me give you an example. The anthrax vaccine um, has never been tested for airborne anthrax of the kind that went into like Senator Daschle's office in the fall of 2001 in the envelope. Never been tested, never been approved for that. Anthrax is normally uh, acquired by people who are working with animal skins. So they get it through the skin, right? So the, the, the vaccines we have are approved by the federal government for use with people who get it that way, not for people who get it through the respiratory tract. So, interesting problem. Um, if you want to, can you order people in the military to take the anthrax vaccine against, say, Saddam Hussein's biological weapon, anthrax, if it's never been approved by the FDA for that purpose? So uh, the answer is yes. <laughs> as we did in the first Gulf War, if you can get the FDA to say, it's okay, you're the Army, you need to do these things, we won't require informed consent. Uh, and that's what that was done. Uh, many people believe that that anthrax vaccine uh, is partly responsible for Gulf War illness. I'm not so sure that's true, but people believe that. Anyway, after 9-11, uh, 
the Congress very hurriedly passed this new rule that basically says that if you've got something that's really important, it's unethical to give it to people, you can't give human, not even college students, you know, you can't even expose lab rats or college students to anthrax. Uh, you know, you just can't do that. Well, lab rats you can. Um, college students, you can't do that. That's wrong. You have to have the philosophers to tell you that. That's a wrong thing. Um, so you can't do this to people. So how do, you, how do we get the information we need to approve it? Under this rule, if you expose two animal species to it and you get the result you want, uh, namely they don't, they, they don't get anthrax, uh, then it can be approved for human use. That's very interesting. So this only applies to, uh, to, to drugs that are really important for the society, perhaps to protect yourself against a chemical or a biological attack. Now, I don't know how many of you are going to run out and buy, you know, anthrax vaccine, and how paranoid you are. Um, there's also new, new uh, creams. You might want to know new ointments in the event of a mustard gas attack. Um, they tested those on pigs because pig skin is the most like ours. Um, those have been approved. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about walking around, maybe I should, Philadelphia, for example, and being exposed to mustard gas. So I'm not going to go out and buy that stuff. So who's going to develop this? Well, the federal government has put about $6 billion into what they call Project BioShield to try to get university scientists and, and private companies to make stuff that could protect us against biological and chemical weapons. It's not going too well. Um, the the BioShield money is kind of languishing, partly because the companies don't want to do the work because they're afraid of liability if the stuff doesn't work. Right? So if I take my, I've got my handy-dandy, uh, you know, anti-mustard gas cream and Somebody runs over to me in Center City, Philadelphia, and pours some mustard gas on me, and I put the cream on really fast, and it doesn't work. I could turn around and sue the company. So they're not too happy about that. They don't want to get into this area. There's no market for it except Uncle Sam. We're still worried about this, though. Uh, we don't really have a good uh, vaccine or, or an intervention for smallpox. Um, there are all kinds of new things that I'm going to talk about tomorrow that have to do with neuroscience and national security uh, that um, are kind of fresh off the block. Um, this is the book I wrote about, about that. I kind of like the cover. Um, uh, so we are in kind of a new era now. We've still got to worry about uh, dirty bombs, radiation warfare, all the stuff that they were getting ready for in the 50s, biological weapons, chemical weapons, trying to figure out how to, how to prepare ourselves for that. Now, as I'm going to tell you tomorrow, big advertisement here for that talk, um, there's a whole new area of, uh, I don't know how many of you work in neuroscience, have taken a neuroscience course, cognitive neuroscience, there's all kinds of new stuff coming out that the brain researchers are developing that um, people are now concerned could be used in warfare. So um, I guess the lesson is, um, although I believe in progress, um, we, we're, we're getting better and better at creating new and more clever ways to hurt each other. Uh, and the end of the book, in the mind wars, I say, you know, it would be good if we could, all we're learning about the human brain, we could come out, turn this around uh, so we would figure out uh, how to avoid doing those things to each other. But we do live in a dangerous world. I think um, you know, we are going to continue to do this kind of work uh, to see how, how the scientific discoveries to benefit people could also be used to hurt people and how we have to protect ourselves against those who would mean us harm. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you for your attention and take discussion. Comments, questions, outrage, especially outrage. Outrage is always fun. Don't be shy.
Sir. I was just, you mentioned the, you mentioned the physician contractors with the Atomic Energy Commission, and that's sort of, you know, a little interstices between the state and the economy. Yeah. Um, and I was, I, I, with the Cuba thing, I know Roosevelt set up uh, Camp Wyckoff when he got back. Uh, again, you know, Rough Riders, not really in the military, more like mercenaries. Tremendous amount of them died there, not, not many in Cuba. Yeah. I'm just wondering how the contemporary military contractors play into this in terms of what the requirements are, are on them, what they might do with either their own people or with uh, paying other populations. Well, in terms of human experiments, uh, you know, today, first of all, with regard to soldiers, it's very difficult to use soldiers in human experiments now. Um, there are all kinds of protections and rules, and there's account, all kinds of accountability. That's a, that's a population that we basically decided um, it's, a, it's, it's a group we don't want to make human guinea pigs. The history of that is pretty interesting, though, because there's a, your, your intuition can go the other way, too, right? Since they're, soldiers are people who have, they're basically, what are they there for? They're there to take risks. So why not put them in risky human experiments that could benefit their brother and sister soldiers? Uh, you know, and there's actually in, in Undue Risk, I talk about how there's been a long-standing debate in the military about whether you could use soldiers would be wrong. Um, we've generally decided today it's, it's basically not kosher to do that, unless it's a situation like the Gulf, in the, in, in the first Gulf War, where we thought Saddam Hussein had stores of biological weapons. We didn't know if the anthrax vaccine would work for aerosolized anthrax, but, but the first rule in the military is you have to accept any order that is both legal and might keep you fit for duty, right? So is that an experiment, right? If you're taking a, an anthrax vaccine that hasn't been approved for aerosolized anthrax, is that an experiment? Well, technically not. So, so um, soldiers, very hard. Prisoners also, very difficult to do under federal rules, uh, very difficult to do research involving prisoners. In fact, in my view, too difficult because there are some psychological questions, sociological questions about prison life that we really need to know about. Um, I was on a committee last year, this is separate from, on prison research, and we, we spent a day in San Quentin. Uh, it was talking to prisoners, there is prison research going on, not much, uh, and they actually, for various reasons, generations of prisoners actually like being in research, uh, because it, it's a break in the boredom of prison life, uh, among other things. So, uh, in terms of what's going on with human experiments right now, pretty tough to do. We were told in the 90s that there were no secret human experiments being done by the federal government. Uh, and I actually, although you can call me like the cab driver I had out to Dulles Airport <laughs> yesterday, thought I was crazy to be so gullible. I actually believe that's true. However, as I told you, you don't have to call them human experiments sometimes to get the information that you want. You call them field tests. Right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is very slippery stuff. Um, but so federal contractors, I'm going to talk more about that tomorrow in the context of neuroscience. Most of what the federal government does is contracted out to university scientists. Um, now, some universities will not take secret, secret contracts, contracts that involve classified work. Harvard won't, Stanford won't, Penn won't, but a number will. Uh, uh, Penn State will, for example. So... Um, that becomes a competition among the universities who would really like some of that money. Uh, so this is a, the end, you know, it's a very, it's in some respects a very settled area and in some respects an area that is very unsettled. Uh, we can talk more about this. Yeah, Jake. 
You gotta wait for the microphone. So it seems to be kind of a common theme that we can make some exceptions to our, you know, sort of settled bioethical assumptions when it comes to national defense, right? We can bend the rules a little bit. We can we can we can do things a little differently. Finish if, your question, then I'm going to answer that part of it. If if it's under if we call it national defense, but of course, what counts as national defense uh, is controversial in itself. And I'm wondering if you think ethicists have anything to say about that. I mean, I, you know, I would argue first Gulf War wasn't about national defense whatsoever. So should they have gotten an exception to that, you know, to the yeah. tradition of... Well, uh, okay. So, good. can I take that as a two-parter? Sure. So, one of the interesting... One of the questions we asked when we worked on that Clinton uh, commission uh, was, um, could we find a document from, say, President Franklin Roosevelt that said that because of the war, the national emergency, we could suspend the ordinary rules of sort of social ethics, you know? and do experiments like the plutonium injections or something. So far as I know, there's never been an executive order from the President of the United States that said, uh, ethics be damned. Right? It's not that straightforward. Uh, could the rules be bent? Were they bent? Well, probably by 1945, it was, it, it, even by the conventions of the day, it was wrong to give those people uh, those plutonium injections, even though no, they didn't Nothing as it seemed happened to them because of that. It was wrong. They were being used as mere means. Right? Start, we can talk about Kant. People were quite well aware of that moral standard. Um, um, so it was wrong at the time. It's clearly wrong today. Uh, we recommended that there should be compensation for any survivors. There are no survivors anymore. Um, so part of the answer is officially the rules are never, never suspended. Unofficially, there are ways of uh, managing and massaging the rules. Now, what counts as national defense, I'm not in a position to say. It's pretty much what the, the government uh, decides counts as national defense. I mean, our public health arrangements also count as national defense. You can construe that very broadly, right, or national security. Um, so, um, this is, but this is, the, this is the puzzle here. Right? If you, one of the puzzles here, what if you decide that uh, and we've kind of had this in the interrogation debate. What if you decide that um, you have to do something that, that is contrary to the rules, but um, it's absolutely crucial for the national interest? Um, and you, so you're going to do that in a classified domain. Right? It happens, and this I think is really interesting, the federal rules require that even classified human experiments, secret experiments, be approved by an ethics committee. Right? So the CIA has a research ethics board. Uh, now, um, that's, okay, that's pretty cool. And, and it all, by the way, the rules also say that if you're in that secret experiment that the CIA is doing, if there were such a thing, that you would have to give informed consent. So what does that mean? It means that you have to have the, the appropriate security clearance as a human subject to get the information you need to give your informed consent. And it means if you're on the research ethics board that you also have to have the secret clearances you need to get the information to judge whether that's acceptable. But here's the rub, and this is why I think secret experiments could never be ethical. What if you dissent? You know, you're the, the, the newly minted young philosopher ethicist from Santa Cruz. They put you on the, one of these secret uh, committees. Somehow you get a security clearance. God knows how. Uh, and uh, and, um, and you, you know, 
I don't know if uh, my professors, you know, I'm thinking about Professor Sukiel back in Santa Cruz. I don't know if she would approve of this. I think this is an ethical experiment. You're the only one who objects. It's classified. What do you do? Right? If you go to the newspapers, <laughs> you're, you're sunk. Right? You're going to Guantanamo. Right? So, um, so this is a real problem, and this is one that we wrestled with at the end of the advisory committee. Um, how, is it possible to do, if we could agree on what counts as national security and national defense, if we could agree that the existential say, you know, survival of the country partly depended on this, could we do an ethical secret experiment? It's very similar to uh, the, the waterboarding, the, the torture issue. Right? Very similar. Uh, it's a, and it's, it's largely unresolved. But I think as long as there's no transparency, um, it's hard to argue that you could do that ethically because the minority, the dissenters, couldn't get their day in court. Uh, Jonathan, I'm curious, I mean, right there, there's sort of gut-level uh, reaction against the idea of people being experimented on without their consent. But we also know from cases on eBay and so forth that people will go out and sell their body parts and whatever, given the appropriate motive, even if they know that giving up the body part uh, might in fact be fatal uh, to them, like the people getting $200 in gold that you, right. you mentioned. So what about sort of a million flip side to the case? You're, we just sort of say, uh, we have these experiments here. The endings may be awful, but you know, we're going to pay you some seven-figure sum if you sign on the dotted line yeah. and open the doors. Um, has that been sort of discussed or explored? It has, yeah. It's, it's one of the big continuing issues, and any of you have said on institutional research review boards, IRBs, that do uh, you know, review protocols for human clinical trials, one of the continuing debates is how much money is too much to give somebody. So, for example, all the students in this room could be in a research study for a, for a drug company tomorrow. Uh, you could make thousands of dollars if you're willing to be re in residence in a drug company clinic for, for days on, a, say, a flu study. A lot of my medical students have done flu studies. You can get thousands of dollars for doing that. Um, so research boards are always debating whether what's too much. Uh, and they use the word coercion. As philosophers, we know they shouldn't use the word coercion because that suggests physical, right, some kind of physical force. Um, but it's, when is an incentive too much? So, you know, although we do rest a lot on informed consent and the notion of self-determination in our contemporary medical ethics, we don't rest on it entirely. We still think that yeah, there's, it's possible to offer somebody too much that it could be exploitation. So if you're, you know, if you're a poor medical student, a few thousand dollars, man, that's a lot of money. Uh, for many people, at least. For the Penn Medical students, it's not a lot of money, probably. But for many people, it's a lot of money who are students. Um, so they wrestle with that all the time. And it's a very hard question. You know, so for example, what if you want to do research on, and this is a real case, what if you want to do research on somebody who's a cocaine addict? And... Um, you know, you're, you've got them kind of dried out, but you, know, you want to see if your new medication might work. And this is a real story. Um, well, you want to pay them for their time. It's only fair. Well, you give cash to somebody who's a drug addict, <laughs> and you're just asking for them to go out on the street again. Right? So how can you do that? Right? There's a big debate about pediatric research. Um, it used to be that parents would get cash for bringing their kids in to be in a pediatric research study. 
um, well, you know, their parents didn't necessarily spend it on their kids. So today, the idea is you give them a, um, many places will give them a, uh, uh, a gift certificate to Toys R Us instead. So we know it's something that's likely to get to the kids. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll get to a video game for the parents. But, you know, this is something that people do worry about all the time. Uh, and it is very difficult. And it, it depends partly on the population you're using in your research. Because if you're using people who are poor, you know, little money is a lot more important to them. So it's a continuing problem. Prisoners, by the way, are not allowed to get any money. Uh, and soldiers don't get any money either for being in research. I remember, I believe, recently that the FDA was called to task because it was not adequately supervising human research. And this was particularly in cases where the drug companies were responsible for the research. I would want my incentive to be that the FDA was adequately and more than adequately supervising. Yeah. And <laughs> there are many, many areas in which... Right. These, these it's, very, it's very complicated. Um, look, the, the ritual in Washington is if something bad happens that a federal agency is responsible for, you, you, in an area they're theoretically responsible for, you call the head of the agency up to put him at a table, and all the members of Congress you know, who are on that committee, the senators or members of the House, uh, tear him apart. Right? They, they shake their finger. How could you? This, the American people expect more from you. What are we paying you guys for? and so on and so forth. And of course, the, whoever it is, the head of the FDA, whatever agency it happens to be, uh, has to sit there and nod sweetly. Right? The reality is the FDA's budget has been frozen. <laughs> they can't hire any new people. I don't know how many of you have been FDA headquarters in Rockville, Maryland. It's a dump. I mean, it's unbelievable, the conditions these people work in. And so, yes, there's definitely been, you know, industries at fault. The FDA uh, is often... Uh, not doing what it should be doing, but it's partly because it, they're, they're drastically understaffed. The, the Food and Drug Administration is responsible for anywhere I've heard from 30 to 60 percent of the American economy. They regulate everything, everything we eat and everything else we put on our bodies in terms of pharmaceuticals and devices. And, and they're drastically under, understaffed. So, uh, you know, members of con the Congress will, you know, will beat them up because it's convenient. Uh, but the reality is uh, they don't have the resources they need to do their jobs. This is one of the reasons that they've started this program. You probably know about it, that the, the, uh, the drug company now, when it submits a drug you know, for potential licensing or device, they actually pay the FDA a subvention to go through the process of approving it. Some people say it looks like blackmail. You know, it looks like you're bribing the FDA, right? Well, it's because the FDA doesn't have any money. <laughs> they, have no, they don't have enough money to do it without the drug or device manufacturer giving them some money so they can go through the approval process. It's pathetic. So, absolutely, FDA often makes mistakes. I'm no defender of the pharma, the, drug manu the drugs manufacturers, the device manufacturers, but I would have to say um, it's also our fault because as taxpayers, we don't write to our Congress, congressmen and women and say, why don't you fund the agency that is protecting our bodies adequately? We can talk more about this. So, uh, Jonathan, how do you feel about the fact that uh, the FDA is now not testing everything? Well, they're, they, are, they're requiring, uh, so on this end, the last bit you're referring to, they're, they're requiring tests on, on, uh, on two species. 
um, in all cases in which it would be unethical to do it in human beings. So again, you can't expose people to smallpox to test a smallpox drug. Uh, and the other condition is um, it's something that is of tremendous importance to the country. Right? So you can't just you know, come up with a new, I don't know, new version of Viagra and decide, oh, we'll just test it on animals. We don't need to test this on people. And they won't, they won't approve that. So you have to have a very strong justification for, for not, uh, not using human subjects. So, um, but there, nonetheless, there's this very interesting loophole now for national security purposes. But the drug companies aren't using it because there's no money in it. And they're worried about liability. Because, again, there's no money in it because I'm not going to buy the mustard gas ointment. I don't know about you. Uh, and and they're, they're worried about getting sued in case the stuff doesn't work. So there's, you know, the, drug, the pharmaceutical companies uh, may be very patriotic, but they're not going to go into business anywhere where there's not, they're not going to make a buck, and they stand to lose a lot. Okay, well, I enjoyed it, and I hope to talk to you under less formal circumstances. So thanks for coming. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.